Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Today is Tuesday, July 6, 2021, and coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered, we'll talk with the Labor Secretary about the labor conditions in this country and also the prospects for an uh, burgeoning economy. We'll discuss that with him also. Journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones turned down his tenure at the University of North Carolina and accepts the position with Ta-Nehisi Coates at Howard University. Also on today's show, a white racist in New Jersey accosts a black man, videotape, then gives his address and says, y'all want a piece of me? Come to my house. Well, protesters did. He is now under arrest by police there. Folks, we got a jam-packed show. It is time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go.
folks, welcome to today's show. Uh, Republicans said that, oh, President Joe Biden is elected, the economy is going to go to trash. Well, that actually hasn't happened. It has been a roaring economy. You know, the one that was started by President Barack Obama and Vice President Joe Biden. In May, 583,000 jobs were added. In June, 800, <coughs> 850,000 jobs were added. Uh, that's about a 300,000 increase, again, over those May numbers. President, President Biden made it clear he is pleased with the progress. I wish they, they probably wish those 600,000 jobs paid $600,000 a year. But 600,000 jobs per month. We've now created over 3 million jobs since it took office. More jobs than have ever been created in the first five months of any presidency in modern history, thanks to the incredible work of the entire team. This is historic progress, pulling our economy out of the worst crisis in 100 years, driven in part by our dramatic progress in vaccinating our nation and beating back the pandemic, as well as other elements of the American Rescue Plan. Today, the U.S. is the only major advanced economy where the OECD projections of future output are higher today than they were in January 2020, before the pandemic hit. And America was ranked first in Bloomberg's COVID resilience ranking. None of this happened by accident. Again, it's a direct result of the American Rescue Plan. And at the time, people questioned whether or not we should do that, even though we didn't have bipartisan support. Well, it worked. Joining us on right now on Roland Martin Unfiltered is the Secretary of Labor, Martin J. Walsh. Secretary Walsh, glad to have you on the show. Uh, I cannot hear him. Please, uh, Secretary Walsh, are you there? Hey, yeah, hold on. Oh, there you go. Okay, can you hear me now? How's that? Okay, all right, now I can hear you. Uh, first and foremost, um, when we talk about uh, these job numbers, um, it, they speak to one thing, but obviously what we still pay attention to are the job numbers for African-Americans. And so uh, what is that looking like? Yeah, well, you know, the, the, as the president said, the jobs report is good. But unfortunately, uh, I'll give you a breakdown of what the numbers are. Reality is of last Friday, the unemployment rate for the white community is 5.2 percent. The unemployment rate for the black community is 9.2 percent. Asian community is 5.8 percent. And the Hispanic was 7.4. So clearly we have a lot of work to do uh, as we think about uh, unemployment numbers in this country. And we need to make sure, and the president's focused on this, that the, the economic recovery is equitable. And we have, to, we have to address it. If we don't address it now, uh, I mean, not, now, now is the right time to address that. So one of the things that we often uh, talk about is that uh, a, a white high school graduate makes more than a black college graduate, which that shouldn't be the case. Uh, you have folks who do not want to confront the reality of race in our economy. That still is a fundamental issue. It, it definitely is. But, but I'll tell you, I mean, President Biden is, when he was on the campaign trail, he talked about that. When he, was, when he, when he got sworn in as president, he talked about that. When he talks about his, his job plans, whether it's the whether it's the infrastructure plan or the CARES economy, um, he, he is asking us as a department, as, 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 a, as a government, uh, to, to address this issue, whether it's through job training, workforce development, making sure that people have opportunities to these jobs. Uh, 
making sure that on, on state-funded contracts, we're, we're making investments in, in making sure that contractors go out, contracts that are, that are done to the private sector, if you will, on um, public public dollars, that, that, that we we also make investments there. I mean, we have to be really intentional about the work we do. You, you can't just... It can't be the same old response as always in the past. Oh, we're going to work on it. This has to be real a real intentional response. And quite honestly, we're going to need everyone to be working collectively together on this. Obviously, during the summertime, it is a huge issue when we talk about um, jobs for young folks as well. You also have uh, uh, folks on the right who are making a big issue uh, out of the unemployment benefits, uh, saying that people uh, out here don't want to work. But the, but the reality is this, Secretary Walsh, I, I think what COVID did, COVID exposed a heck of a whole lot. And one of the things that exposed were, were, were the number of people and who were spending, the amount of money they were spending to travel and daycare. And they simply said after COVID, you know what? If you want me to go back to those jobs, you're gonna have to pay more. And we have examples where companies have actually paid more. They have not had a drop off in their revenue. In fact, they've been able to make money because they had to pay their workers more. And so a lot of people are saying, Look, you have to deal with this wage, uh, this wage uh, shortage, if you will, and it can't be companies sitting on trillions of dollars in cash and the workers not being able to benefit. Now, you said a lot there, and let me just—I'm not going to dispute anything you just said. I think the $300 benefit that that was extended on the plan benefits, in my opinion, doesn't keep people out of work. What that what that's doing—it was done over time of COVID. We're still in COVID. Many people lost their job. Their job is not, they have no job to go back to. So they're trying to find a new job in a new industry with new employer. Uh, and, and that's $300 kept food on the table, roof over people's heads, and gave them some peace of mind during a, very, during, during a period in a country, which we haven't seen in 100 years during a pandemic. So that, that first and foremost, that $300 is really important. As, as we think about going back, yes, there has been some employers paying, offering more money to their employees, and there's nothing wrong with paying your employees more money. Uh, as a matter of fact, that creates opportunities for, for people to be able to earn a living and put food on the table. Um, the president also it, it has filed a bill that would raise the minimum wage from $7.25 an hour to $15 an hour. I mean, think about raising, you can barely raise an individual on, on, on $7.25 an hour. You really can't. Uh, and $15 an hour is tough, but it, it, what it does, it sets the tone to raise the wages and, and you know the administration has been very clear on, on increasing wages in, 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 in this in this time uh, because again it's creating pathways for people to get into middle class one of the issues that we have been focused on here we have a segment called where's our money and one of the things that uh, i have joined with others is really going after a lot of these companies when it came to advertising for black owned media and the reality is, I think when we look at contracts, the same thing happens on the federal government. A study was done three years ago, commissioned by Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, that showed a black-owned media got 1% of federal advertising contracts. We also saw uh, during the Trump administration the, the, the bundling, if you will, of contracts versus the unbundling of contracts, which allowed for black-owned companies, smaller companies, to be able uh, to go after those jobs. The reality is this, uh, Secretary Walsh, that if the federal government does not confront this issue of lack of contracts, we're never going to see black businesses grow. Prior to COVID, there were 2.6 million black-owned businesses. Of those 2.6 million, 2.5 million only had one employee. I don't necessarily call those black businesses. Those are, those are sole proprietorship. And so what about that issue as well? Because lack, lack of access to contracts... Uh, the ability, the inability to be able to get those contributes to the inability for us to be able to hire, expand, 
build capacity and grow wealth for the black community. No, you're 100 percent right. I mean, listen, I was mayor of Boston for the last seven years and and we we, did, we made some adjustments. But honestly, to be honest with you, uh, we made some some focus adjustments in the last year and our numbers aren't, aren't great. And you really have to you have to put work into it. You can't just simply say set a goal and say, okay, this is our goal. We're going to have X amount of percentage of black-owned businesses. There has to be a whole program set up, and, and we're able to do that in Boston. And I'm not going to see the benefit of that, but the next mayor will. The next mayor will see the benefit of that. And I'm taking that experience with me to the federal government to, 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 to not make the same mistakes we did. We had, we had all good intentions. We had the, the, the right hope to do. We wanted to make a big difference. But what it was is, 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 is it's just the process wasn't set up to be successful. And, and that's why we think about the, the, the money from the federal government, making sure that the, the right um, the, the right procedure in place and the right supports for the companies are in place so that black owned businesses can access these federal dollars. And you're absolutely right. That's one way of starting uh, starting out and getting getting successful. Another way I have to give a shout out. I was at uh, Black and Bold Coffee the other day in Iowa. It's a black-owned business coffee shop that, that they do all of their, their purchasing. Most of their purchasing, they support other black-owned businesses. So that's another way also of being helpful in the private sector, supporting and in, 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 in sub, sub, subbing some of your workout and buying, buying your supplies from, from companies uh, that are owned, black-owned companies in the community as well. Well, and I'll tell you, I mean, that's, that's, that's what we do here. I mean, we just moved into new offices. We literally are uh, building the studio now, and, and I was very intentional uh, of hiring African-Americans who build TV sets, who build backgrounds, African-Americans who are lighting directors, African-Americans who are engineers, because a lot of times they don't get these opportunities. Uh, you know, we probably are going to spend uh, more than $300,000 uh, uh, and actually even more in terms of, uh, you know, doing uh, our, our new office. If, you, if you're a black-owned company and you're able to get, uh, you know, uh, that thirty, dollars $60,000 contract, I mean, that, that's a huge thing when others are bypassing you because, you know, for, 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 for whatever reason. And so it is about being intentional. And, and so I'm curious to know, in your position as Secretary of Labor, how, how, what are those conversations like when you're talking with these CEOs to do that? Because there's a lot of people, uh, Secretary Walsh, who talk a good game. They put up black, black, you know, um, the black tiles on Instagram after George uh, Floyd's death. They've made all these different announcements, all these great things they're going to do. Uh, and they talk about they want to, you know, give out aid and scholarships. But black, the black community doesn't need aid. We need aid and investment. And so what are those conversations like that you're having with those, uh, frankly, white CEOs? Well, quite honestly, I'm still early in my tenure here, so I haven't had a lot of those conversations. But, but I could speak from, from my experience in the city of Boston. Um, we were seeing a, a, real, a real change as far as hiring, creating pathways, not just in City Hall, but in businesses. And, and we were seeing, seeing a lot of good work being done. I want to take some of that work with me to Washington. I have. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm just beginning these conversations. I've been in the role about three months now. Uh, but, you know, these unemployment numbers, when they come out month after month, Again, you know, the reason why I highlight them when I'm on national news is because we can tell a good story and 3.1 million people have gone back to work, but it hasn't, again, hasn't been completely across the board and, and there's still lots of work to be done there. Uh, well, it, it is certainly a, a whole lot to do. Uh, you know, we are always very particular in looking at uh, the black unemployment numbers, the unemployment numbers for uh, African-Americans uh, as well. 
and, and I dare say this, Secretary Walsh, when, when people, everybody's talking about crime. Uh, you hear people discussing these various issues, and I keep saying over and over and over again, unless you deal, unless you add the economy and jobs and opportunities and education to any discussion about crime, then you're not having a real conversation. I agree with you 100%. I agree with you 1,000%. That's exactly the answer to, the, to, to a lot of the crime in America. It's about creating an opportunity for a young person to get a job. I've seen it firsthand up close and personal in my city. You create opportunities for employment that good paying jobs for people, whether in the building trades or whether in, in industry. Those kids do not go back to the street corner. They, 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 they take all their focus, all their attention, and making sure their attention is on, on making money, and, and that's what they, they people want to do. And same for education. We have to. The president has made it, made it, made an, um, a recommendation for an investment in universal pre-kindergarten and also childcare. We have to get our kids into school earlier. We have to follow them through. We got to get the outcomes better for our kids because any kid that has an education has an opportunity in front of them. Then they're going to choose the opportunity, and they're not going to they're not going to have to fall back into into some of the criminal justice system things. And we spent a lot of we spent money in reentry. I think we need to also continue to put money on the front end so we don't have the reentry programs because kids don't need the reentry programs. You said uh, this is my last question. I was going to make that one my last one, but you said something in your answer. That is important. You mentioned the trade unions. Uh, I said this years ago when President Barack Obama was in office and Gene Sperling came to my uh, Sunday show, Washington Watch on TV One, and it was talking about an infrastructure bill. And what I said to him was, I said, you've got to make sure that those trade unions open up those jobs for, for African-Americans as well. There have been studies done in Chicago that estimated over a, a period of 10 years, uh, several billion dollars did not go into the black community because African-Americans were not being hired. This infrastructure bill the president has put forward. I think it is important, Secretary Walsh, that the president, that you, that other economic leaders make it clear to these unions, these trade unions, do not freeze black workers and I'm out, out of jobs. And I'm not talking about going to create some apprenticeship jobs. I'm talking about the African-Americans who are qualified to be carpenters, drywallers, all of those high-paying jobs, because if they want black votes to get it passed, they better also employ black people. If you look at the, uh, if, you, if you, when you get a chance, Google the program Building Pathways in the City of Boston. That's a pre-apprentice program that started in 2011. That was off of the American Recovery Plan by President Obama, the investment in public housing. We created a program over 500 people of color, people and men, 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 women and men are in the building trades now because we created a pre-apprentice program. Some of them now are, are, lots of them, lots of people, I should say, are journeymen now. They're, they're making the full rate because they got in through that program. That's the type of investment. That's the type of programming you need that actually can make a difference. It, it, it's legacy programs. That program is still existent. The, the, the American Recovery Plan is all gone. It's beyond the money spent. But the, the building trades in Boston kept that program going, and they continue to make investments in that program. You do programs like that around this country, in the next five to ten years, that, that's the game changer for everybody. Uh, I agree. So uh, we certainly are going to keep watching this uh, and keep pushing this issue because if you don't deal with the money, you cannot change the conditions that black folks have had to face in America. Secretary uh, Martin J. Walsh, uh, Secretary of Labor, we certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.
Thank you. Let's go to my panel. Ben Dixon, host of the Benjamin Dixon Show podcast. Teresa Lundy, principal founder of TML Communications. Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali, former senior advisor for environmental justice EPA. Uh, Mustafa, I want to start with you. Uh, you know, on that point there, this is where the full force and power of the federal, federal government is important. When I said the Secretary Walsh, they got to challenge those trade unions and others to make sure that they are not locking black people out. And I know he mentioned that pre-apprenticeship program. Okay, but again, those are low-level positions. I'm talking about the experience African-Americans right now who could be, should be qualifying for those high-paying jobs. This is where political power must be a must and tell them, open your doors. Yeah, I agree completely. You know, the Department of Labor has an opportunity to really make sure that it's infusing intentionality into, you know, these sets of opportunities that we know can garner wealth for folks. So for me, it's on two sides. It's on making sure that workers have the opportunity to get these higher paying uh, job opportunities inside of the trades, but it is also about ownership of business. So they have an opportunity there to actually make sure they're infusing dollars in a real way. And then of course, the other part was those public private partnerships uh, and having those conversations. And so I appreciate the success that the Biden administration has had so far. I, I take a bit of a pause um, when Secretary Walsh said that he had not yet had certain conversations with folks. So I know we all encourage him to quickly begin to have those conversations with the individuals who actually have the ability to leverage these sets of jobs that we are often um, barred from to a degree, or at least our numbers are not representative uh, for our numbers across the country. You know, th this, this, thing, this thing about uh, just being intentional, Teresa, uh, is crucial. And, and, and the reason I specifically asked the secretary those questions is because these leaders, these CEOs, these labor leaders need to understand and need to be challenged directly by government officials saying, if you are going to benefit from our policy changes and you are going to ride black boats to do so, then you better make sure that black people are getting a part of this. Absolutely. So the immediacy was there. I think even in the questioning and his response um, for labor leaders and elected officials and really stakeholders to really have a founding understanding of what their position is as we start to have that conversation about rebuilding the economy. So um, I think there has been a lot of job opportunities that has been happening, but I think more does need to happen um, in terms of uh, what the hourly wage looks like, um, upcoming opportunities, construction projects. But again, these are a whole host of uh, items that can happen in each department. But I think with the right um, analysis um, tr and also tracking for purposes um, would also help us um, figure out what the next steps can be. Uh, B Benjamin, um, look, I'm going to keep pursuing it because let's be honest, these are not the questions you're going to hear asked on MSNBC, CNN, Fox, ABC, NBC, CBS, because they really don't understand what's going on here. I cited the City College of Chicago several years ago, did an expansive study that said black Chicago lost upwards of $10 billion by being frozen out of the trade unions. 
No, absolutely. And I think it's the framing of the conversation that gives it so much power. This is why we're able to unearth some of the the, the nuances that are important for the black community. I also would have loved uh, uh, the labor secretary to speak on the strategy that they're going to use to actually overcome some of the challenges that they're having on the political side because there are a lot of remedies for black people that are that are located inside of these unions and and the ability to organize and we look and see what uh, Amazon has done in Bessemer Alabama and the pushback against the ability to organize this is a this is an issue for black people as well so I definitely appreciate the framing of the entire conversation in that regard uh, well again as I said we're going to keep uh, pressing this issue uh, as best as we can all right folks let's go to our next door remember the 76 year old black grandmother who was sent back to prison for not answering her phone from a probation officer because she was in a computer class. Well, she's actually heading home. With the help of the criminal justice advocacy group Families Against Mandatory Minimums, Gwen Levy got a compassionate release today. The group filed a petition on Levy's behalf and a judge ruled in her favor. This is the statement from the judge. U.S. District Judge Deborah uh, Chassanow stated, Upon full consideration of the factors, the court concludes that it would do little, if anything, to serve the goals of sentencing to require her to return to full custody. During her incarceration, she took many courses, worked, and competed, completed drug education. Levy is among 24,000 nonviolent federal prisoners who were allowed to serve their sentence at home to slow the spread of COVID-19. She spent 16 years behind bars for conspiracy to sell at least one kilogram of heroin. Now, without the ruling, Levy would have spent eight more years in prison. Now, of course, remember last week we talked with Kevin Ring, who was the president of FAM. He joins us right now. And Kevin, uh, thank God we, we, we did not have one of these crazy Trump judges uh, who listened to the likes of Tom Cotton or Jeff Sessions, and they just believe in just tossing more people in prison. This was stupid from the get-go. But the real issue here that the Bureau of Prisons did not have to actually do this. And this is where I still believe the challenge should be to Attorney General Merrick Garland and President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris to get some people in these damn systems, the bureaucrats, who understand being compassionate. 100%. They have got to change the culture of the Bureau of Prisons. You, everyone gravitated to this story because it was hard to believe that we were sending a 76-year-old grandmother cancer survivor back to prison because she went to this computer class. Um, but this is the type of thing that happens, and there's no common sense. And you, you, I mean, think about that halfway house, that Bureau of Prisons official who said, yeah, this violated our rules technically, and so our options are send this woman back to prison for four or five years, or give her a warning, bring her back to the halfway house, do something different. I mean, the idea that they thought that the appropriate action was to bring her back to federal prison is disgusting, and it happens all the time. And the culture needs to change, and the culture won't change until you bring new people in there, as you said. And, and, and to that particular point, we talk about the culture, because this is the issue uh, that we're seeing uh, in this country in terms of how people think and, and how they respond. Uh, and she's 76. How much time does she actually spend? How, how much time has she been? How long has she been in, uh, in jail? She was in prison for 15 years, home for a year, and has just been back in jail for now a couple weeks. And so she was. So even even in those couple of weeks, uh, it, it just didn't make any sense at all. Uh, is Fam still so? Even though she uh, is going to be released, first of all, has she already been released, or is it still being processed? 
she should be out between 7 and 10 p.m. tonight. Her son's waiting for her. And, and so even though she is going to get out, are y'all still pursuing, uh, again, meetings with DOJ to say, you need to be examining this? Well, look, we've been meeting with the Biden team since they were in the transition. And then we met with them when they got appointed. And remember, she's one of 4,000 people who were sent to home confinement under Bill Barr's tenure as attorney general to get them away from COVID. So she became the poster child for this group of people, these 4,000 people. Now, hers took this awful turn where she was sent back. And luckily today, the judge granted compassionate release. Her story's done. There's 4,000 others, low-level people who are home, have been home for a year, followed all the rules, and they're at risk of going back unless the Biden administration does something to keep them home. Um, and, and, and that just, just makes just no sense whatsoever there. Um, have, have you talked to her? Last time you talked to her, and how is she feeling? Well, I've, I'm waiting to get a text. She, her attorney talked to her. Everyone heard the news except for her. Her attorney finally got to do a video call in the jail. Apparently, she cried and then did a happy dance. She's going to be able to go home. They have a family reunion coming up that she wouldn't have been able to go to because her officer wouldn't have let her do that. But now that she's on probation, she's going to be able to do that. So she deserves a chance to rest. I mean, think about it. Over the 4th of July, it was hard to imagine that she was sitting in a D.C. jail. And um, so I'm just glad she's going to be home with her family. Uh, well, I agree 100 percent. Certainly give us give her our, our thoughts. Uh, and we certainly, uh, again, uh, these are the kind of issues that, that we want to keep uh, folks uh, centered on uh, because there are too many others who are going through this who don't need to be sitting in prison at taxpayer expense. They can actually uh, be rehabilitating themselves at home. Well, thank you for bringing attention to it. It really did make a difference in this case. I mean, it shouldn't have taken all this attention. Uh, to do something that was such common sense, but I'm afraid that's the way the system works, and they were exposed for this sort of corrupt behavior, and I'm glad it worked, but thank you. Uh, and we're going to continue. Kevin, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Great work. Thank you. Um, this, Teresa, is, uh, this is why, first of all, uh, media matter. This is why you have to shine light on this sort of stuff, why you have to have people who are telling these stories. Otherwise, I mean, she would be sitting in prison. You're absolutely right. And you know what? I think from start to finish, you know, uh, I was following this case and a few of my colleagues, and we said, this is just ridiculous. It could have been our grandmother. It could have been our auntie, our sister. But as I look at this woman, I'm like, she is, you know, essentially, if she's not family, she is uh, a part of my African-American heritage. And I said, and, and I have so many uh, friends who, unfortunately, uh, are still stuck in the system. So those who are waiting for that unfortunate call to go back to jail. And I think many of us are, you know, who know those who have been home for that one year are still waiting for that call. So, I mean, you know, if we're not bringing the issues to the forefront, uh, I think, again, we're going to have more of these conversations and dialogues. But again, uh, media matters. And that's why it was, uh, you know, this 76-year-old woman was able, is able to come out um, but again, there there's still more pressing issues on the table. Um, ben, th this is again, uh, as I said to Kevin, I, I really hope Attorney General Merrick Garland, uh, I really hope Vanita Gupta, uh, I really hope that Christian Clark, I really hope there are conversations in the Department of Justice with the Bureau of Prisons about stupid ass procedures like this. Right. And while this is not connected to 
critical race theory directly, right, it, it is important for us to understand that this system is uniquely designed to grind black people up into a dust, into a pulp, and, and it is so reflexively used to doing that that it didn't even realize that this is an instance that it would backfire on them. Um, and so um, I, I think it is it is good that this decision was made today, and I would absolutely love to see the footage of uh, her reuniting with her son. Uh, it's still emblematic of the fact that this is a this is at the root of this white supremacist system um, at the core of this democracy. Well, Mustafa, well, common sense and legal sense very rarely come together. You know, we can look at a situation and say, well, why would you do that? You know, it, it's the way that the system has been built. And of course, we all know that the system is broken. When we look at probation and the various types of violations that can send you back to jail uh, for sometimes decades, you know, we know that we've got, we've got so much hard work that has to be done. And, and as Ben said, you know, this is a part of the policies that have been put in place. And there has been some intentionality in that system um, to make sure that there is a population that continues to, to revolve in this. And we got to just call out the fact also that, you know, this is big business. Prisons are billion-dollar industry. So that's not, you know, we're not going to say that in all cases folks are thinking about the monetary value of keeping someone in. Of course, we know that there's a, a larger value in making sure that people aren't because taxpayer dollars are being utilized. But there are a number of prisons across our country that utilize the individuals to you know, to supplement uh, and to create products that are then sold to, to consumers. So you got to understand the, the totality of what's going on as we begin to dismantle uh, and hopefully rebuild in a more humane way uh, these systems. And of course, the Department of Justice is one of the first starts in making sure that they are pushing the Bureau of Prisons to do the right thing. So free at last for Miss Levy, free at last. Thank God she's free at last. All right, folks, let's go to Tennessee, where a former police officer's guilty plea of killing a black man uh, sends a grieving mother into a rage. In July 2018, Andrew uh, Delk shot Daniel Hambrick uh, in the back three times as he ran away. At his hearing, uh, Delk pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter. He got the opportunity to express his condolences to the family. I'm pleading guilty today because I recognize Anthony. My use of deadly force was not reasonably necessary under all the circumstances. I, I recognize that what happened on July 26, 2018 was tragic. Mrs. Hamburg lost her son that day, and I am responsible for her loss. These are facts that I will have to live with for the rest of my life. And no mother should ever have to experience the loss of a child. And not a day has gone by that I have not thought about my actions. I also recognize that my actions impacted the community and the police department. I hope, <laughs> I hope this case can contribute positively to the much needed discussion about how police officers are trained and how we as a community want police officers to interact with citizens. I am deeply sorry for the harm my actions cause, and I hope that Mr. Hambrick's family will obtain some comfort 
for my acceptance of responsibility and my guilty plea today. Uh, wow, folks. Following that statement, y'all, Vicki Hambrick, Daniel Hambrick's mother, strongly reacted to what he said. I can't believe it. I can't believe this, Judge. I can't believe it. I've been going through this for three years. I can't believe it. Yes. Take your time. Judge. Take your time. I lost my mother. I lost my grandmother. I lost my father. My father had a stroke and a heart attack.
Teresa, whenever we see uh, these um, stories, um, oftentimes uh, we, um, we have folks who want black folks to express uh, forgiveness. Now, Hambrick also says that she was not informed of the pact that Delk made with prosecutors to plead guilty in exchange for a three-year sentence. His plea means that he will not have to go on trial for first-degree murder this month. So they do a plea deal. He gets three years. Doesn't go to trial. Could have gotten a lot more. And th th this is where I'm, I'm with a lot of black people. Like, damn this whole, you know, let's extend forgiveness. That woman lost her son. And you heard the judge sitting here trying to get her to calm down. No, the judge should have sat his ass there and let that woman talk as long as, as she needed to talk. And then, but no, they all, they all cut and ran because they did not want to have to listen to the anguish in that black mother's voice. Yeah, um, sorry, it's the first time I'm seeing that video. Um, I think mo most of the issues that, you know, that really honestly just took place in that room, um, honestly, you know, the, the judge, like you said, he should have sat there on the bench and listened. I think, uh, I didn't even know that the, um, the family didn't, I don't even understand how you make a plea deal without the family's acknowledgement. Um, but that's a, the first issue. And then the second piece is again, three years for a life. And it, it, so it's it's very difficult, you know, when we talk about criminal justice reform and this is still happening. Every single day, um, people are die dying, families are dying. And then when it is time for us to receive justice, i.e. black people, we're not getting it. But the calls for action are high. I'm, I'm just trying to, I, I can't really get around, you know, what the, um, I, the purpose of a three-year sentence, and I think that is even something to really dissect, because it looks like this, you know, uh, whoever this uh, young officer is, he really, it, you know, showed the definition of white and privilege inside uh, a police reform commission uh, system. And so, you know, when we see this type of mayhem and this type of tragedy happen, it's, it's almost... Um, again, you wonder why people don't believe in the system. You wonder why, you know, people, uh, when, when issues are happening inside of communities, they're not calling the police first, they're calling their family members first. Because these issues are continuously happening. And then when it's time to receive justice, even with a black judge sitting there, um, it doesn't seem like it's happening. So it's just so, again, unfortunate. Um, you know, we're sitting here and again, look, looking at that, um, uh, Ben, and how, yeah, how in the hell do, do, do the D, does a DA not tell mm -hmm. the family about this sort of deal? But these are the kind of deals that are cut for cops. Yeah, I, I, Roland, I'm not interested in going through the phase of getting justice for black people that includes an entire season of how low of a uh, count of years can you get in exchange for a black life. Like, prosecutors and district attorneys need to understand we're not playing this game. If you would not give someone on the street three years for a human life, don't give it to a cop. Because our lives are worth just as much as anyone else's. This is an insult to the family. 
This is a slap in their face. And that black mother had every right to be as angry as she was because her child is gone. And this guy is going to what's equivalent to a summer vacation. He's going to, uh, to college. He's going away to college. And when he comes out, he's got the rest of his life ahead of him. But this young black man does not. So this black mother had every right to say everything that she said, and she could have said more, and the judge got in the way. He did not expect... The judge was looking for the sensibilities that we've seen from, from so many black families, and however they choose to process it, it's their, it's their prerogative. But they're so used to us being forgiving and forgiving these, these, these cops and, 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 and ushering that over to them? No, no. This mother said everything that we've been feeling as a black community, and I'm so sorry that it had to come at the expense of her child. Mustafa. I mean, she lost her everything. I mean, you know, a mother who brings a child into the world and has to watch that child leave because of a decision that a police officer made uh, is a heavy, a heavy berry, you know, something to carry. And this case, you know, this, this life should have never been taken if you really understand this case. You know, you had a police officer that was following a car. Now, he worked on, on a task force that was supposed to be looking for stolen cars by youth. He was following a car, ran the plates on the car. The car didn't have anything attached to it. Uh, then he ended up, you know, following a little while longer, lost it, and then went into uh, an area and saw another car that he knew was not that car, but decided to get out and then chased this young man. In this moment where lots of folks are afraid of the police, and then shot him multiple times. So, of course, the mother is going to be upset. So we have a lot of folks who bore responsibility in this moment. The police officer does. The district attorney does to make such an egregious uh, commitment to this police officer to give him such a small amount of time. Folks really understand what this is. This is 1,095 days is all that that police officer will serve for murdering this young man. 1,095 days, that's how much this young man's life was worth. And that's why we say that the system is broken. But maybe we shouldn't even say that the system is broken because the system was never created for fairness for us. So we have all these different dynamics that we have to go through in trying to figure out how do we get a system that actually works for black and brown people. And, and I'll be quite honest, I'm not wise enough to know what the answer to that question is in this moment. Um, it is. Uh, it is certainly. Um, it is certainly troubling, uh, and and th this is why, when people talk about Black Lives Matter, this is why when people talk about uh, what has to happen when it comes to uh, getting justice um, in this country, uh, those things are important, uh, and so um, that's uh, how it goes. All right, uh, so we'll. Uh, it's just. It is so unfortunate. Uh, but that, that, that mother's pain uh, is real. Folks, uh, some breaking news here. Uh, the uh, U.S. Olympic team has decided uh, that uh, sprinter Shikari Richardson will not be at the Olympics at all, at all. Uh, this is what the New York Times posted about 20 minutes ago. Breaking news, Shikari Richardson will miss the Tokyo Olympics entirely after officials decided not to include her on a U.S. relay team. She previously lost her spot in the women's 100 meters after failing a drug test for marijuana. 
Of course, uh, she talked about, uh, as she admitted uh, to smoking marijuana uh, after she got the news that her mother had passed away from, from a reporter. She said she knew uh, that it was wrong. She knew that uh, she could uh, test positive. She knew what, what this could actually do to keep her out of the 100 meters. Uh, because of when, when the 100 meters starts, uh, the 30-day suspension did not, would not have, first of all, would have kept her out of running the 100 meters. But she still could have been in the Olympics by running the 4x100 relay team. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised here, Ben, uh, that the U.S. Olympic Committee decided that they wanted to reward athletes who did not test positive. There are other black athletes who won. There are three other black women who were actually three, two other black women who won the 100 meters of the Olympic trials. The person who's replacing Shakira Richardson is a black woman. Uh, then you also had the women who won the 200 as well. I wouldn't be surprised if they said reward those folks who actually made the team who didn't test positive. Yeah, I, you know, in the, in the backdrop of all this, I just can't help but to realize that in this transition, there's going to be a lot of white folks making a lot of white, a lot of money off of marijuana. Um, and while these are quote unquote, the rules, uh, it's funny how easily people genuflect towards the rules when it's, uh, it doesn't really impact them. But in this case, this sister, has the skill set to do everything that needed to be done. And while in this country we're going through the process of legalization and decriminalization, we're still having to bow down to the rules uh, of this Olympic Committee. It is there, it is the Olympics. But the other thing is there's so many other places where they're giving black women, not only here uh, on the American team, but also internationally. Uh, it is not a friendly system for black women. And we've seen the rules be changed, even for Simone Biles. So I have a lot of feelings about this particular story, Roland, and uh, I, I think that they are making a mistake on this one. But I'm curious, how is it unfair for black women when there are a lot of other black women who qualify? I mean, we're, we're only talking about, first of all, you know, of, of the people who didn't qualify, it's two, it's two black women who didn't qualify, okay, or who actually, who, who, were, um, who were booted from the team. Shakira Richardson, uh, in uh, the sister's last name was Gaines, she said she missed uh, her appointment because she had an abortion two days earlier. She was at home yeah. recovering. But I read the New York Times story. Here's the problem. She missed three other appointments in 2020. Had that sister not missed those three appointments, it would not have resulted in the suspension with the one that she missed when she said she had the abortion. So, so, the, so I get your point, but there are a lot of other black women who did qualify. Here are two who got booted. So how is this actually against black women? Well, I didn't say I didn't say the sister that you're referring to. I don't know the the exact details of her story. But I'm talking about Shakari, um, and I'm talking about this transition, like very specifically. This transition, there are going to be a lot of people making money off of marijuana right now. They're making money off of marijuana, and this sister's being disqualified because of marijuana use. I really would like to see any of them run a hundred meter uh, while high, even if she wasn't high at that time. It's just absurd. Uh, at the core of it. Uh, we still are looking at the other issues where women, the swimming uh, in the swim team, unable to wear the, the mask or the caps. Right and, and, actually, and actually, according to, I got a story from the BBC, uh, that decision, which was made by the Swimming Federation, apparently that uh, is being reconsidered. Uh, I'm going to pull yeah. the story up so that, that after all of the attention, uh, that, that, black, that black company out of the UK, that particular ban on those caps is being reconsidered. Yeah. No, I mean, and as as it should, and I think that's just exact. This system again, uh, whether it be the Olympics or whether it be America, the American democracy, it's not built for us. And and I don't care if this is like not necessarily. Uh, she broke the rules, and she admitted as much. 
okay? Um, that doesn't change the fact that in the backdrop of all of this, there's still a lot of people in this country that are going to be poised to make billions of dollars off of marijuana, and she's paying the price almost as one of the last people to pay the price of marijuana as a black person. The thing, the thing here, uh, Teresa, uh, is, and, I, and this is where I think this makes a difference. When she talked to the, on the Today Show, she said, I knew what I was doing. I knew I was breaking the rules. And I knew I could lose my spot if I tested positive. It's sort of like this, this, was, this wasn't a mistake. Uh, I, and I'll say it, it's not a popular opinion uh, from a lot of what, what they always say, the, the, uh, the blue check folks on Twitter. Uh, but I don't think Shakar Richardson should have been running in the relays. I believe that to, to, if you're going to compete on the U.S. Olympic team, I believe that the people who play by the rules, who made the team, the other women who run the 100, the other women who run the 200, the other women who run the 400, they should have an opportunity to run on the relay team. I agree with you. You know, I saw the, the Twitter chat about it, and honestly, when I saw the interview on the Today Show, um, honestly, if I was her PR spokesperson, I would have probably just said, do not go on national television and tell them that, yes, I'm confirming I am breaking the rules. I knew what I was doing. So you were very intentional in what you were doing because that's what you felt you needed, but you knew the consequences if you got caught. So I do think other black women who did, you know, test uh, negative and also was able to, um, you know, uh, qualify for the relays should absolutely get a chance to go um, in her spot. I, I, I think it's kind of self-explanatory, but I do agree with Ben. You know, if if the, the laws did change and, you know, uh, marijuana was actually uh, legalized uh, and I guess, I guess the laws will be amended in the Olympics, then I think this would be a different story. But as of now, she intentionally knew that she was breaking the law and she knew what level she was on and thus the consequences ensued. Uh, and, and Mustafa, I think being this right, people are, people are making enough marijuana. But here's the deal. Marijuana is still not legal in all states. Uh, I, I, you know, I've had to have that conversation with um, family members, friends, and others saying, hey, you, you might be in Texas. It ain't legal. So guess what? Unless you're in Washington State, Oregon, Colorado, or the states where it is legal, understand, you can, you can get your behind arrested and thrown in jail. It's, it, it, is, it is still accepting the, the reality of, of where we are. Until you have a federal legalization of marijuana, you're going to have these things, the, 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 these discrepancies here. Uh, but I think this decision, so I want to get you, just your thoughts on this decision uh, by uh, the Olympic Committee to have her not run on the relay team. You know, it's a tough situation. I mean, I ran track for years and years and all through college, and, and I know how strict some of the rules can be and the testing that goes on lots of times for folks. Um, I see it a little different. I see it as, as we've got to make sure that we're dealing with these young athletes and many times who are under huge amounts of pressure, her losing her mother, you know, that there's the mental health aspect that's there, that we got to make sure that we're getting folks the help that they need and the guidance that they need. When you're moving on to these big stages like this, you know, there's a huge amount of pressure and you really got to have a strong team around you, especially if you're one of the elite athletes that are out there. And then, of course, for all the folks who advocate you know, for 420, you know, who support that space, you got you to continue to make sure that the, this is removed 
um, as one of those things that could be an impediment. Um, and um, we just got so much work that has to happen to get this space right. So they could have made her a reserve so that she could at least been there at the games and to have experienced it because she's so talented that she's going to be back there again. And of course, if our country wants to continue to win, then you need folks who are experienced. So I get that they don't want to, you know, send out the wrong message and they don't want to sort of uh, support what they consider to be bad behavior. But there are lots of other ways that they could have approached it to make sure that, one, she's not allowed to run, but that she could still experience, because it's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal opportunity for anyone to be uh, a part of the Olympics. Uh, and, and I wish some people also understand the reality of this. Uh, I don't know who this Cornell Cole is on YouTube. Said you can't, you can't cash a gold medal at the bank. You clearly are dumb as hell. You clearly have no clue. If Shakari Richardson does not fail that test and she goes to the Olympics and runs in the 100 meters and wins the gold medal, I dare say that decision to smoke that blunt, Benjamin, cost Shakari Richardson anywhere from five to $10 million. That, that sole decision, in terms of, we know, when you, if you, you go to the Olympics and you set an American record, an Olympic record, a world record, or you actually just win the gold medal, you cash in big time. And in fact, for Olympic athletes, that's when you make your money. You make your money after the Olympics. First of all, leading up to it, the endorsement contracts. We're talking, uh, we're talking Nike, Adidas. We're talking Wheaties. We're talking, I mean, all kinds of brands. We're now living in an age that you're talking about five, 10, 20, 25 million dollars that was lost because of that decision. That's how big a financial decision that was. You know, if we're talking about the deleterious effects of substances, I would hope that they would, you know. No, 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 I'm talking about, I'm talking, no, 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 Ben, no, hold on, Ben, I'm talking about that particular point where his brother said, you can't cash that gold medal. You can't actually cash it. I'm just simply saying that this is the impact of a decision. The impact of a decision isn't just you fail a test. You fail a test, you can't run the 100. Now they say you can't run the 4 by 100. What it also means is you at 21 don't get, if you go to Tokyo and win the goal, you then don't get to come back and reap the economic benefits of being the gold medal winner. That was the point I was making. Yeah, no, I, I understood your point. I was going to circle around to it, but I, I'll cut straight to it. I mean, Purple Urkel is going to need an endorsement right now. I mean, <laughs> Shakari, Shakari should just go ahead and make that move because if they're going to play this game with a substance that is, we're talking about weed. Like, if you smoke a cigarette, don't talk to me about weed. If you drink alcohol, trust me, don't talk to us about weed. Now, we're just talking about justice. Rules don't equate to justice. And we're talking about fairness. Rules do not equate to fairness. The Olympic Committee is behind the eight ball. They made the decision. She lost out. We get it. So let's holler at, at somebody in the marijuana industry because let's not only let these white boys be the only people making billions of dollars off of weed, even, she, even oh, though she may have lost this one. As somebody who can't stand weed, uh, who don't, who ain't never smoked, I, hell, I'm allergic to smoke, I've long said that African-Americans should be benefiting from the economic uh, reality of the marijuana industry in this country, uh, the billions of dollars that are being earned right now, Teresa. But I do think it's important, and, and, I, and I say this to anybody who's watching, that I, that I, I, that I just need our, our people to understand this here. 
We can talk about what's, what's unfair, what's not right. Here's what I'm going to say, and it doesn't matter who you are. There are consequences to every action that you take. There are consequences. And then there are consequences that you can call unfair. There are consequences that you can call uh, that, that are wrong. But the reality is there are consequences. What I stress to my 13 nieces and nephews, that I stress to my cousins, if you're going to make a grown person decision, understand you better be able to deal with the grown people consequences. Absolutely. And especially if you're a person of color, um, those consequences are going to be much higher than your counterparts. And so we just need to be very mindful in this age of digital media, social media, print media, any type of media where you can get your point across. Um, but also, if you carry a larger platform, um, it will be scrutinized. And what you don't want it to be is scrutinized by the wrong persons that can affect your uh, financial and economic welfare. Uh, and she hasn't lost her uh, Nike endorsement, uh, Mustafa. But but there, and, and I'm saying this, and again, and I, I totally understand uh, Ben's point. But here's what I also realized. It's a bunch of our people who are, who are applying for jobs who are still failing drug tests. Uh, and I remember talking to a black-owned uh, black, uh, black um, soul food restaurant owner uh, in, um, uh, in, in Texas. And he said, man, I would love to employ a lot of our people. He said, but they can't pee in the cup. And, uh, and again, there are people who say drug tests on jobs are unfair. What I'm saying is we have to understand what is still a reality that we are dealing with in the employment space. And so while there are people, while there are lawyers, while there are advocates who are fighting to change those things, we still better be fully aware, again, of the consequences of the decisions uh, that folks take. If you are 17 and 18 and 19 and 20 and 21 and you decide to smoke marijuana, yo, that's on you. But if there are consequences, understand they're going to happen. And unfortunately, there are still states in this country that they prosecute even for marijuana possession. Other places where they're saying we're not going to prosecute those cases, finally we're seeing progressive DAs, but there are not progressive DAs in every city in this country. Mustafa, final comment. That's just real. Uh, uh, you, you can lose your federal job uh, because of smoking marijuana. And in fact, now, in fact, wait a minute. Didn't, weren't there several people in the Biden White House who got hired, who they had to let go? I, didn't that happen? Yes, it did. Yeah, it did. And so you just got to be aware. I remember we were having a meeting in Colorado after it was legalized there, and we had to make sure that we share with everyone. Now, y'all understand that it might be legal here in Colorado, but when you get on that airplane and if you got something in your bag, um, you could run into some real problems. And you could also, if you are one of those folks who get selected to have to take a drug test, because it happens periodically, then you could also get yourself in a serious situation. So just be aware of what the current law is. Um, so it's real. And for our folks, you know folks are going to pay even more attention because they make some assumptions. Um, so we just have to understand what the current sets of laws are. And then for those who want to advocate to change that, we got to continue to push. Absolutely. All right, folks, I got to go to a break. We come back. Ooh, white man loses his mind in New Jersey. Oh, he's our crazy-ass white person. And guess what? He actually 
gave out his address and challenged folks to come to my house to whoop my ass. They did. That's next on Roland Martin Unfiltered. I believe that people our age have lost the ability to focus the, the discipline on the art of organizing. The challenges, there's so many of them and they're complex and we need to be moving to address them. But I'm able to say, watch out, Tiffany. I know this road. That is so freaking dope. <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud of the officers I worked with on January 6th. They fought extremely hard. Our worst nightmare really come true, uh, an attack on American democracy uh, right here in the nation's capital. I experienced the most brutal, uh, savage, hand-to-hand -hand combat of my entire life. I received chemical burns to my face that still have not healed to this day. I just remember people still swinging metal poles at us, and they were pushing and shoving. They were spraying us with, uh, you know, bear mace and pepper spray. They were all shouting at us, calling us traitors. It's been very difficult seeing elected officials and other individuals whitewash the events of that day or, or downplay what happened. As an American and as an Army veteran, it's sad to see us attacked by our fellow citizens. <sighs> Touch is responsible for the content of this advertising. Festival of Culture Live Loud Virtual Experience uh, is over. It was the last two weekends, but you can relive all of that by going to uh, Essence.com and EssenceStudios.com to watch all of the events. So please uh, check that out. On tomorrow's show, we're going to have a recap of the second weekend, and so we look forward to that. All right, y'all know what time it is. No charcoal grills are allowed. I'm white. I got you, bro. Selling water with our permit on my property. Well, folks, you should never write checks your ass cannot cash. A New Jersey man is facing charges after launching a racist tirade at his black neighbor. This video, folks, went viral. Go ahead and roll the video. This video went viral over the weekend, and it is absolutely crazy. It shows Edward Cagney Matthews getting in the face of a black neighbor. Listen. Parts of Sandy's Landing, you know, 
I cannot. Property. Okay. 
Have a nice night. I'm going to let you guys get an education right now. All right. Thanks, man. appreciate it. I'll do my job. Right? No problem. Denise, I'm not going away until your husband stops Kenny. fucking finding me and threatening me while I'm at Kenny. fucking work. Kenny, cut it out, man. Oh, Let wait. Talk to them. Arrest me. I'm not oh, you kidding? Right now. Relax. You fucking niggers. Just cut it out, dude. That's what you can see, Brandon. 3602 Gramercy Street. Come see me, you. Nobody's coming to see you, Cagney. Go home. I'll talk to you in a minute. That should not be allowed. I agree that's with that's you. Not to go I agree with you. You want to you want to get yeah, yeah. real quick? Let's see what's going on. Did you know there was money? Cagney, cut it out, man. Go home. So, y'all did hear the racist give his address out, and then said, "Come at me." Twenty-four hours later. Here's another video, y'all, another angle uh, of when uh, the car was, um, uh, when, when the cops were on the scene. And that, now, y'all see that, Lord, they, they're sitting here. Uh, uh, and this was another angle of when they were walking him out. Uh, and you saw that they formed a gauntlet. They formed a gauntlet. And, man, he got showered uh, with all kinds of stuff. They smacked him on the head with, uh, with, the, with the Black Lives Matter uh, flag as well. Uh, they let it see again. Yeah, this is what happens when you talk a whole bunch of trash. Uh, if y'all go back to yeah, thank you. If y'all you talk a whole bunch of trash, uh, this is the car pulling off. Um, I, I'm just saying it, it's never it's never a good idea uh, being it's never a good idea being to give your address to ask was- folk to come whoop your ass. I, I mean, he asked and he received. I, I think he was supreme, uh, supremely confident in his position on this thing. Like, um, I, I really took notice of how familiar that police officer was with him and how how calm he was. But this this white man was really trying to create. Uh, he created a very hostile situation, and um, he finally was arrested. It's a shame that it took so many people standing up and and responding to his call to show up as at his address, but they did. And it just shines light on how the, the fact that this system will protect protect this white man. Um, they gave him protection. Look at how look at how the police escorted him out to ensure that he got out safely when he was the culprit. Um, I, I just think that this just shows you how far this country goes in terms of how they view their supremacy. These folks are not supreme. This was this was a mess. Well, and, and again, he w- he was arrested by the cops. Uh, they've added additional charges. Uh, this is another uh, video that's on Twitter, uh, Teresa, uh, that I'm playing right now. And, and you see, and again, 
He, he was so bold, talked a lot of trash, and going to give an address, and they said, all right, since you're going to boldly give your address, we're going to boldly show the hell up to your apartment complex. Absolutely. You know, this is what I talk about when it looks like unification and larger numbers. Uh, oh, wow. He just threw something uh -huh. in the window. Uh, <laughs> uh, unification on all levels. But again, kind of going to Ben's point, I also took notice about the officer. Um, again, if, I think if the role, if the colors were reversed, um, and the in the, the maybe the neighborhoods were a little bit different, I think that 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 officer also should be brought into question because again, all of the nonsense that Edwards was uh, spewing at you know uh, at someone else, um, either you know it looks like a social media beef now going um, into an in-person confrontation, he should have been arrested on the spot. So the lack thereof of actual, uh, you know, uh, hit the police officer doing his job, I think, again, where are we talking about uh, criminal justice uh, reform and what does police reform looks like? Well, it looks like when the, the, the African-American guy decided to call the police, that there was no help for him. So if, if that black man then took out his second, uh, you know, decided to take out his Second Amendment right, and shoot this officer, who knows who what charges would have been um, happened after that. So, again, thank God for video, and thank God these people came out. And, and Mustafa, to that particular point, man, look, you can't tell me if a, if a, if a black man had ro rolled up to the crib and was yelling, screaming, and cussing and in the face of some white folks, the cop would have been like, Tyrone, go ahead home. I'll talk to you later, Tyrone. <laughs> yeah, that's probably not going to happen. We very rarely see that happen, unless you grew up together. <laughs> maybe play mm. ball together. You know, it, it's interesting. Let's go deeper. So the homeowners association or the rental company, whatever this situation is, knows this individual's behavior because he said he's done this type of stuff before. So, you know, there seems to have been no accountability. So hopefully there is now. And then you also got to ask yourself, who's this individual work for? Does he represent you? Does he still have a job? Will he still have a job? Depending on how much time he may or may not get for the types of uh, actions that he just did. And then, of course, what was raised also is that the familiarity, that whatever that law enforcement uh, agent or, or, or officer had with him also leads us to, to believe that, you know, these types of behaviors are well known to him uh, and that he did not do anything. It should have never taken, you know, all of these uh, young people coming out to actually have to rectify this situation. And let's just call it, we saw black folks and white folks and, and Latinx folks all there, standing in solidarity, letting this individual know that this type of behavior is not going to be tolerated. But they shouldn't have to do that. Law enforcement should have been on the case right away, making sure that they were rectifying this situation, just like they would have if it had been a black or brown man. Look, I, I keep telling y'all, if, if all these white folks want to keep acting a damn fool, showing their ass for the camera, I will be happy to keep doing crazy-ass white people. I'm just letting y'all know. But I'm telling you, if y'all keep acting a fool, y'all gonna get real famous. And if you're gonna keep running up on, uh, on videos, giving out your address, folks are going to show up. This, this generation not playing that game, y'all. They ain't playing that game. And how y'all getting hit? Y'all getting hit because you're gonna be losing your job. Yeah. You're gonna lose your job, and guess what? Everybody know this race, this ain't his first time. 
the first time he got caught. That's the difference here. This is the first time he got caught. So uh, that's the deal. And so uh, I appreciate all of y'all bigots showing who y'all are because we thank y'all so very much. Folks, three years after a New York judge told a black defendant his brain was probably retarded in growth, an appeals court reduced his sentence. The panel of judges shaved off 10 years from Angelo Johnson's 15-year sentence after deciding Judge Frank Labuda's comments from the bench were utterly racist. In 2018, Judge Labuda told Johnson he felt sorry for him in open court. And if it wasn't his fault, his brain, quote, is not developed. Convicted of burglary, Johnson still has five years left to serve. His, his uh, parole hearing is next month. A judge. A judge, Ben. A judge. Uh, I, this situation here, I, the thing that, Roland, that really troubles me about this is that uh, this brother is spending more time in jail for burglary than that cop is going to spend for the murder of yep. a young black man we talked about earlier. That that blows me away. It just shows you the true um, disparate nature and how they devalue our lives in this country. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that is the problem that we see. And uh, But again, judges, uh, Teresa, this person said it on the bench he shouldn't be hearing another case. You're absolutely right. Um, I think there needs to be a review board um, for this judge. Um, I believe he's retired, so I mean, grateful. But again, how many other judges um, that he's been around that he knows that's in um, his district that he's that they've been sharing similar stories with, you know, behind closed doors and also giving sentences on behalf of black men, um, you know, to the extent of the law. So, you know, again, elections matter. I think we've hit the nail on the head on that many of times on this show and talked about, again, we can't just focus on, you know, uh, local races or well, st statewide and presidential races, but on federal races. But I think, again, when we say judges matter, um, really taking a look at, you know, some of these judges' decisions um, and if they're, again, their recommendation, you know, they all have to get recommended uh, recommended by the Bar Association in some capacity. But I also think we need to take a closer look at the record because, again, these are the ones who, you know, go in, they, they get elected, and they're probably there more than, longer term than, you know, the four years. So it just depends on what city and state. But, you know, Philadelphia is here in 10 years. So um, we got to vote. Mr. Alpha, he is a retired judge. He should never hear another case again. He must be retired permanently. Without a doubt. I mean, plus you got to go back. You got to go back. He was, I believe it was 22 years that he sat on the bench. So you got to go back and, re and review those cases uh, with, a, with a real fine-tooth comb to see if there were biases that were inside of that. So that's one side of it. Two, I believe that even though he's retired from the bench, that he's still in private practice now. So that means that whether it's the you know, the American Bar Association or whoever needs to also take a strong look to see if this person deserves um, to continue to have their license if he is still practicing, which I believe that he is. And then the third part is that we also got to understand, and this is why history um, and, and us understanding, you know, how the eugenics movement was tied to science, was tied to policy, and was also tied to the law. And you see that from those early time periods moving forward, how you still see folks having some of those similar views about our intelligence and our value uh, and how we should not even be allowed to be a part of this society. 
So all of that stuff is wrapped up and it comes out and how some of these, uh, you know, judges and others actually conduct themselves and the sentencing that they give. All right, then. Folks, got to go to a break. We come back. Dion Warwick will join us to talk about why artists should get paid when their music is being played on the radio. Plus, we'll talk about the fallout of the University of North Carolina, where Nicole Hannah-Jones has spurned their effort for a tenured position and announced that she and Ta-Nehisi Coates are going to set up shop at Howard University. That's next on Roland Martin Unfiltered. White supremacy ain't just about hurting black folk. Right. You got to deal with it. It's injustice. It's wrong. I do feel like in this generation, we've got to do more around being intentional and resolving conflict. You and I have always agreed. Yeah. But we agree on the big piece. Yeah. Our conflict is not about destruction. Conflict's going to happen. What's up, y'all? I'm Will Packer. Hello, I'm Bishop T.D. Jake. What up, Lana Well, and you are watching Rolling Martin Unfiltered.
That is, if that was Chance the Rapper, of course. Uh, don't forget, if you want to watch the 2021 Essence Festival of Culture Live Loud Virtual Experience, uh, go to EssenceStudios.com or Essence.com. Folks, um, radio royalties is a huge, huge issue. And a lot of artists and musicians, they're fighting uh, for those rights. Now, y'all, it's a really complicated system. So when you're listening to the radio, when you're listening to music on the radio, the artists, they're not getting paid. They're not getting paid. The American Music Fairness Act will require AM and FM radio stations to pay royalties to musicians and vocalists. As of right now, only songwriters are pay paid royalties by radio stations. Now, there are a lot of people out there, especially radio station owners, they contend that they are providing free marketing, if you will, to the artists. But truth be told, their whole business model is built on free music. Joining us right now is five-time Grammy Award-winning singer uh, Dionne Warwick. She says that the recently unveiled legislation should have happened when Frank Sinatra brought the issue to Congress 60 years ago. And, and politicians have procrastinated for far too long. She joins us right now. Uh, always get good to see you, uh, Dionne. How you doing? Uh, I am doing great. Glad you took a break from smacking folks on Twitter. <laughs> I'm not smacking anybody. I'm just asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is one of those issues that the average person has no idea about. They think, oh, man, your song goes to number one on the Billboard charts, or, or it has, uh, uh, it's the number one uh, when it comes to radio plays and how many spins it's getting. But if you're the singer, you're not getting paid. That's true. That's absolutely true. Not getting one dime. And so when we talk about, when we talk about this, uh, and, and this has been going on for a very long time, and there have been a lot of people, including black radio station owners, who have been fighting artists on this, saying, hey, don't make us pay, make, make the record labels pay. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how they, they feel that they don't owe us anything, and without us, that probably wouldn't be existing themselves. You know, I don't know if a... a uh, an entity that would want to advertise on a radio station just to hear somebody talk. I think they are gravitating to radio stations that play our music, that gets the attention of people. So uh, if that be the case, paper play should be the simplest thing in the world to understand. And, 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 um, the, the, the thing here, and again, people who never who don't understand the nuances of the game. I mean, the reality is, if you're a singer and you're not the songwriter, at the end of the day, your best shot at making money is touring. And you know, I, I people, I love people. They talked about, oh my god, like like when I remember when I was with Savoy Magazine, Arista, when they signed that hundred million dollar deal with Whitney Houston. People were like, oh my god, uh, Arista signs with it to a hundred million dollar deal. I was like, y'all. That's an advance. That's all it is. That's an advance. I said, she got to make that 100 million back. Oh, definitely so. She's got to sell that many recordings in order to honor that 100 million dollars. You know, these numbers mean absolutely nothing. Not to the artists, anyway. They mean an awful lot to the record companies and to those who are making these deals for the artists. 
it's uh that's why you know i i have to say i marvel and applaud our youngsters those in the recording industry today who have taken control of their own writing recording uh they get their own dollars because they sell their own recordings you know i i'm, I'm so proud of them for taking the helm and saying, no, no, you're not going to cheat me out of what I am due. This is my property. Well, in, in fact, in fact, what many of them are doing uh, is is what Sam Cooke uh, did before before he was killed. But it's mm -hmm. also what Prince was really yes. trying to get so many artists to understand by saying, stop signing record label deal, sign distribution deals. You don't because at the end of the day. When you talk about marketing, they're charging you for everything. And so, and, and though now what we're talking about here, now you have these radio stations who multi-billion dollar corporations. You've got iHeart, you've got Urban One Radio One, you've got Cumulus, uh, you've got smaller, uh, uh, you know, companies out here. And they, and, and essentially what they're doing is they are, their entire business is built on getting free product. Exactly. You're absolutely right. You know more about this than I do. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Trust me. Uh, I'm, uh, I I'm very familiar with it uh, because uh, when I had my show at, on TV One out of the time during the morning show, Kathy Hughes was a very strong opponent of this bill. Oh, yeah. And she, 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 ran some, uh, she ran some tough spots against some black caucus members like Mel Watt and Sheila Jackson Lee uh, because they were supportive of this bill. Yeah, you know, it, it's amazing how, in fact, uh, we almost lost a friendship. Kathy and I have been friends for I don't know how many years. And because of this issue, you know, I, I just didn't understand how she didn't understand why we were asking to be paid. I mean, she's playing my records day in and day out. Why should I not reap the benefits of that as well? You know, I mean, she's filling her pocket. Fill mine, too. You say y'all almost lost one, so did, uh, did y'all patch it up? Because you, you still are out here advocating for this bill. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's been, it's been 40 years that I've been involved. And that's ridiculous to think that a bill of this nature, which is so obvious. I mean, it's not something that is, you have to be a rocket scientist to understand. You know, I, in fact, uh, the last Senate hearing I did in New York, I, I even asked her, can we go back retrospectively? Let's go back to 1962 when I first recorded. Can I get money from that from that period to this? Mm. You know, it, it just, just doesn't make sense that we've been just made obsolete as far as radio stations are concerned. You know, if, if we didn't give them our recordings to play, I don't think their advertising would be as as lucrative as it is. Well, where does the bill stand now? I mean, is, is it close? Do you think it's going to pass? I certainly, certainly hope so. I mean, they have procrastinated long enough. You know, they really have. It's time for them to get up off their humps and sign this bill into law and make it happen. I mean, it just doesn't make sense for it not to happen. Um, where's the White House? Because uh, you actually came to D.C. to lobby on behalf of this bill. Is the White yes, House is the White House behind this bill? Is Congressional Black Caucus behind this bill? Well, I certainly hope so. I haven't had an opportunity to to meet with 
either the White House and or the Congressional Black Caucus. But if it takes that thing, you know, Dion always has no problem doing it. So, uh, have you have you seen uh, a young uh, artist? Uh, step into this uh, and, and, and support this here uh, because it, it sort of reminds me of young athletes who don't, who don't necessarily realize that the people who came before them made today possible. And so when you've had these battles over uh, supporting of funds for veteran football players, the young guys are like, well, that's coming out of our pocket, but the reality is without those veterans, you don't have the NFL you have today. Uh, and so... Are, are, are younger artists standing with you and others to say this needs to become law? I've not seen any of the younger artists. I, I don't know if they are even aware of what's going on. The 90% of them basically are, have their ownership. So I don't think, I don't know if they're really concerned or not. The concern basically is more for the legacies of those who have passed on. Their families could certainly benefit from this. And, uh, you know, it, it's just a matter of doing the right thing. You know, I, I, I just don't, I don't understand how much more they can take out of, out of the, every, everybody's pockets, basically. I mean, those pennies mean an awful lot to us. Right. And yet, you know, nobody seems to care. Well, and, and you just made a good point there that people don't understand. They don't understand uh, the, the the estates, the trust, uh, the family members. And the reality is, and look, look, I love music. Uh, anybody, anybody, they see me on Instagram, you know, I, mm -hmm. and, 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 uh, and I, 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 first of all, I hate streaming music. So yeah. I actually buy the song. Uh, so I buy the album, and so I remember Prince retweet Prince tweeted me back when I said, "No, I don't, I don't stream." Because even with that, I mean, you, you have some songs that have been streamed six hundred million times, yeah. and somebody got paid thirty thousand dollars. That's right, exactly. So you know, I you know th this is something that has to come out of um, politics. It just has to be removed from politics and brought into mainstream. People have to, got to realize what is actually happening. So like you said earlier, uh, you know, the, the normal person walking down the street thinks that Dionne Warwick, every time walk on by, got played, got paid. And it, that, that's not true. That just didn't happen. And I wish it had, of course. You know, oh, like yeah. Every, you know, every recording artist existing, I don't care who you are, you, you know, we've just been taken advantage of, and it's time for it to stop. Well, there, there have certainly been efforts to deal with that. When, it, when we've had the lawsuits, we've, we've seen just how unbelievably crazy these recording contracts were, how, yeah. how artists got screwed out of royalties, how they got screwed out of publishing. I mean, we can just, just go down the line. Uh, yeah. and, so, and so, you know, this, this bill here so, it deals with that as well. And so uh, we're certainly going to make a few calls as well to find out uh, where this stands in Congress uh, mm -hmm. and uh, where some CBC folks uh, stand as well, because it'd be very interesting to see uh, a lot of folks uh, who love to have folks like you uh, perform at their CBC galas uh, yes. or, or their benefits. Uh, and it's great. Oh, we love, come, come on, uh, we love hearing Dion sing, but as you say, Dion want to get paid. Exactly. You know, I think Jan Jackson said succinctly, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's truly that. 
it really is. You know, we they they call on us to do everything in the world, and we show up to do it because we believe in what their causes are. However, they've got to start reciprocating. They really do. They have to stand behind us and beside us. Absolutely. Well, well Dion, uh, you're welcome on this show anytime. All you got to do is just uh, give us a holler. If you want to come on, just let we make it possible. See, that's also what happens when you own your shit. You don't have to ask somebody else's opinion. Uh, can, uh, can we make this happen? So uh, you're welcome on Roland Martin Unfiltered anytime. Thank you, my darling. I appreciate you, and I appreciate your show. I appreciate it. Uh, it's always good to see you. We'll chat soon. Thank you, darling. Take care. You take care. I love you, too. All right. Love you. Let's I love bring, you. bring in my panel here, Ben, Teresa, and Mustafa. I mean, this is the business of the business. I talk about this all the time. You better understand the business of the business, uh, Ben. And when people who haven't read these books and when they and when they don't understand how a lot of these artists that we love and adore and, and all of a sudden they they get older that's why you got that's why you got some artists out there who are 70 and 75 and 80 and 85 still touring because they got no choice Ben we're pretty extensively the the amount that these contracts actually take from these artists. Uh, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world in that industry. And uh, one, I, I do want to say as an aside, I have been able to witness Sister Dion Warwick's uh, taking names on Twitter, and it is a fabulous thing to behold and to just be on a, a panel after her is, 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 on, uh, is, is fascinating and it's a blessing. But the artists have been taken advantage of in this industry for a very, very long time. I'm disappointed to hear what she said in terms of the younger artists not actively participating in it. Um, maybe they have enough control over their royalties and their distribution. They have a, a an ideal situation. But my, my guess is that there are a lot of artists who are still vulnerable to the record industry as well as the radio industry, and they really need to rally behind this effort. Um, it's, it's not surprising, uh, Teresa, uh, because I, I use the example of the NFL. If, if you're a current guy, you don't understand what in the hell those, old, those veterans went through. That ain't your thing. And you're like, you know, why, did, why do I need to put my stuff on the line for you when the economics of the game has changed? The reality now is artists have been able to build their own following. They aren't uh, beholden to the record label. They've got their social media. They can go directly to them. They can sell merchandise directly to them. It's a whole different world. And so what Dionne Warwick is saying right there is that, hey, there are thousands of singers who this could, in, this could impact their estates uh, and their children and their children's children because classic music is timeless. I talk about, you know, I talk about music all the time. And I mean, to this day, we still are jamming songs in the key of life which Stevie Wonder put out then 40 years ago. We're still talking about Marvin Gaye and what's going on. We're still jamming uh, Count Basie and Duke Ellington, and we're still jamming uh, the Temptations and the Motown sound and Aretha. We still are rocking the songs that are 50, 60 years old, and the reality is 50 years from now, at a, at a family reunion, they're going to be jamming Earth, Wind, and Fire. They're going to be jamming uh, Frankie Beverly and Maze and so many artists. But the reality is, when that music is being played on radio stations, if this law does not get passed, the songwriters, they get paid, not the artists who made those songs what they are.
And that's why everyone needs to advocate together, knowing that, again, these type of music wasn't meant for one generation. It was meant for generations to come. I can't not think about the uh, July 4th and how many cookouts and block parties um, I went to and you heard classic music. You heard radio stations playing it on the dial. And so to hear that there is um, a lack of dispersion of funds going to the, not, you know, the artists, it's it, it's really just, you know, unparamount because there has been so much, uh, I think, update in the media sense, as in we have Siri Satellite, we have um, HD2 as another network, we have HD3, but there is still, I think, that that realness of component of just going to your local radio dial and knowing that classical music, classic R&B, classic love songs, i.e. the baby-making music <laughs> that they used to say, <laughs> is still relevant to today. And so they should be compensated as such. And look, I, look, uh, Mustafa, if, if you're Kathy Hughes or at Radio 1 and Alfred Liggins, if you're iHeartRadio, if you're Cumulus, if you're any of these other smaller radio companies, I mean, you don't want your bottom line impacted. And so, you know, what they say it is we shouldn't be paying. We, we're providing a free marketing service to them. The record labels uh, should be paying it as well. Uh, and so, but, but, but whereas where Dion is going, hey, your business, you're building a business off a of basically free product. You know, if we're going to be family, then let's be family. You know, we often call out when those who are not a part of the African-American community are doing the wrong thing and want them to be held accountable. We got to do the same thing. And hopefully we don't have to, you know, we can come together with solutions. When I was working for John Conyers, which I'll always be thankful for, I remember he introduced H.R. 848, which was actually looking at a piece of this and trying to make sure that the artists were going to be fairly compensated um, on the copyright side of this issue. So this is a long-standing uh, set of challenges that we could actually rectify. We just got to be willing to actually do the right thing. We should be taking care uh, of those folks who actually, you know, no pun intended, were the soundtrack of people's lives for a long, long time. And, and then it also builds a stronger foundation for these new artists. So hopefully there are some folks out there who are willing to make some investments around the education of why this is so needed and how it actually helps this next set of generation uh, to be in a stronger position as they're negotiating and building, hopefully, their empires. All right, folks, let's talk about the, this story that came down today. Nicole Hannah-Jones is rejecting the University of North Carolina's controversial tenure offer in exchange for another opportunity. Of course, she is a journalist with the New, journalist with the New York Times, uh, created the 1619 Project, which won the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, she's actually going to become a member of Howard University's uh, uh, for Howard University, where they're going to create a, school, a, uh, a, a, a program there, Center for Journalism and Democracy, along with her as well as uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates. Now, she went on uh, CBS this morning uh, to make the decision, uh, but she also is going to serve as the school's first night chair in race and journalism. Uh, when she, uh, and, and of course, folks have been all across social media been talking about, especially black journalists, and how big of a decision this is. Uh, last week, of course, uh, the University of North Carolina Board of Trustees voted nine to four uh, to grant her tenure after initially the decision was made uh, not to bring that to uh, not to bring that to uh, the uh, the board to actually approve. Now, uh, she issued a statement with regards uh, to 
uh, this decision. Uh, she published this, and I'm going to uh, pull it up in a second. Folks, if y'all have the statement, uh, go ahead and pull it up, please, uh, so I can read from it. Uh, internet, internet's moving a little slow, uh, and so uh, here it is. Uh, just give me one second, folks. Give me one second. Uh, this is a PDF statement. Uh, and though she said, quote, I have loved the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill since I was a child watching Tar Heels basketball on television. Um, two de decades ago, in 2001, I learned that not only had I been accepted into the master's program at the journalism school at UNC, but I had received the full tuition part fellowship. I cried from joy. I cannot believe how lucky I was to get the chance to learn journalism at a place I had so long revered. For the next two years, I practically lived in Carroll Hall, spending more time there than anywhere else, even my apartment. I passed hours and hours in that building, studying, working at the park library, soaking in the skills of journalism, as well as its ethics and mandates from the many generous instructors sitting in the offices of professors such as Chuck Stone and Harry Amana, who enthralled me with their stories and guided my steps. I met one of my best friends in the master's program, and she became my daughter's godmother. And so it went on and on and on. She talked about getting awards, what she created, the kind of things that she did. Uh, then she also uh, said this here. She talked about uh, what went through and when she was granted tenure and uh, the problems uh, that took place and all of the impact. And one of the things that she said uh, in this statement even at noting the people who have lobbied for her. And, it's, and again, it's a, it's a very long statement. Uh, and she said, these last few weeks have been very dark to be treated so shabbily by my alma mater, by a university that has given me so much and which I only sought to give back to has been deeply painful. Uh, then she laid out some other stuff in here. But then she said, uh, I cannot imagine working at and advancing a school named for a man who lobbied against me who used his wealth to influence the hires and ideology of the journalism school, who ignored my 20 years of journalism experience, all of my credentials, all of my work, because he believed that a project that centered black Americans equal the denigration of white Americans. Nor can I work at an institution whose leadership permitted this conduct and has done nothing to disavow it. How could I believe I'd be able to exert academic freedom with the school's largest donor so willing to disparage me publicly and attempt to pull the strings behind the scenes? Why would I want to teach at a university whose top leadership chose to remain silent, to refuse transparency, to fail to publicly advocate that I be treated like every other night chair before me? Or for a university overseen by a board that would so callously put politics over what is best for the university that we all love? These times demand courage and those who have held the most power in this situation have exhibited the least of it. And the statement goes on and on and on here. The, the, the thing here, Ben, again, if you go read the statement, it's a very, very long uh, statement that she actually released here. Uh, and people have been talking about this. And, and, the, and so Howard University uh, stepped in. I would love, uh, we're going to try to get President Wayne Frederick on. I would love to hear how uh, this all came about, how it was, uh, how they, they created this, uh, this particular center. Um, and... But, 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 the thing, but the thing that, that we also are looking at is, is she and Tony, they made the decision, she made the decision to spurn the University of North Carolina to go to Howard University. I've heard people, to say, I've heard people today say Howard should have been the first choice as opposed to UNC. I've heard others say that there were a lot of people who protested uh, about, about her getting tenure. Some people turned down jobs, some resigned. And some people have said that she should have gone to UNC and fought to change the system because others stood up for her to actually get tenure. Your assessment uh, of this whole debacle uh, that has unfolded. 
sister uh, Nicole Hannah Jones, she she's absolutely doing what I, I you know what is in the best interest for her. Um, and I I applaud it. I I think we are better for it. I am excited to see that team go over to Howard uh, University. And it really is a bold statement to let a lot of these institutions know that we're doing you a favor by lending you our blackness. You know, Sister Jones was doing you a favor by lending that black magic, that black woman magic that she does in journalism, the professionalism and the countless hours that she put in to develop and hone her craft. And if you're going to dismiss her to the totality of her work because of your insecurity around white, uh, 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 around racism, um, then, then it's your loss. And, and I think that's what she stated today. And I think uh, as a nation, as a black people it, in general, us collectively, I think we should make that statement on a regular basis because there are plenty of institutions that not only cherish our work, but will promote it without any inhibition or fear of white supremacy. Uh, Teresa, this was the tweet that Howard University sent out today with this announcement. Howard University announces Nicole Hannah-Jones and Ta-Nehisi Coates will join the Howard University faculty to help educate the next generation of black journalists. This was, of course, her uh, speaking this morning. because she gave, she, she gave the television exclusive of this to uh, CBS uh, and Gail King. Listen. What did you do? We just heard the vote was 9 to 4, offering, offering you the tenure. What have you decided? Well, I've decided to decline the offer of tenure. I will not be teaching on the faculty of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. It's a very difficult decision, not a decision I wanted to make. Uh, and instead, I'm going to be uh, the inaugural night chair in race and journalism at Howard University. So many things to unpack there. First, let's start with you declining the offer. The vote was 9 to 4, clearly in your favor. There are some people that could say, you said you wouldn't take the job without being offered tenure. They offered you the tenure, and you're still saying, thanks, but no. Absolutely. Because... Well, because look what it took to get tenure. So this was a position that since the 1980s came with tenure. Mm -hmm. uh, the night chairs are designed for professional journalists who have been working in the field to come into academia. And every other chair before me, who also happened to be white, received that position with tenure. Mm -hmm. I it was had denied never that. been denied. No one had never. ever been denied tenure before. Exactly. And I went through the tenure process and I received the unanimous approval of the faculty. Uh, to be granted tenure. And so to be denied it and to only have that vote occur on the last possible day, at the last possible moment, after threat of legal action, after weeks of protest, after it became a national scandal, it's just not something that I want anymore. So that was uh, what she had to say uh, to CBS this morning. Teresa. Yeah, I think Nicole you know, like many, uh, did what was, what was in the best interest of her. I mean, we don't know the, the back end of the, the amount of stress, the amount of calls, the amount of anxiety. And, and honestly, even if you read her pieces, it's, I just want to teach and educate. And so, you know, I'm kind of with her, but again, if, if I'm thinking about the advocacy side, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing Nicole to stay there and, and, uh, at U, uh, UNC and create additional change for a system that obviously needs an uplift. But I am also excited that she's over there at Howard University. And I do believe, you know, Howard is going to get uh, exactly what, what they're looking for. So they, they um, wanted someone that, you know, um, is high energy, um, high standards in journalism, ethical, professional, that's what they're going to get um, with Nicole and Tahisi. So congrats to them. Mustafa. What did Dr. King say? In the end, we will not remember uh, the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. For the University of North Carolina to remain silent 
for so long says a lot. And it also prepares you for if you do decide to stay, that you may not have all the support once the cameras and, and the media attention goes away. So, I mean, everybody knows I've went into some tough situations and uh, organizations that folks said, you know, might not be the, the most receptive. But I totally get where she is. And I'll just say also, I appreciate it. The way that she, uh, you know, played this out today, you know, like a top-round draft pick, you mm -hmm. know, making sure that, that folks understood that she understood her value and that she was going to leverage it to make sure that she got the best possible set of circumstances as she moves forward and helping to prepare the next generation. So congratulations to her. Something also, what you're seeing happen here in... Uh, we're seeing this actually in sports, where we saw, of course, uh, Deion Sanders make a decision to become mm -hmm. the head football coach at Jackson State. Uh, of course, Eddie George was announced as the new head coach at Tennessee State. Uh, this happened over the weekend. Uh, former uh, uh, NBA star Reggie Theus uh, announced as the new head basketball coach and men's athletic director uh, at uh, Bethune-Cookman. And so, are you okay, Ben? Yeah, no, that's my school, I, I, man. I, I, I saw, Hell, I saw you. I, I, saw I wasn't you. on. I wasn't on screen. You, you weren't. Uh, you, so, were, were you? I take it this is news to you. You weren't aware of this. I wasn't aware, but Hell Wildcats, Bethune Cookman University. That's my school, man. So what we're seeing, what, what we're seeing is one of the things that we're seeing is we're seeing uh, HBCUs uh, go after big names like this. One of the reasons, Ben, is because in the wake of George Floyd's death there's been a significant influx of cash going to HBCUs. Mackenzie Scott, uh, the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos, has been has given you know, millions of dollars, uh, has greatly increased uh, the, uh, the funds, uh, the, the endowments of H several, a number of HBCUs. And so, so we're actually seeing this, and, 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 I, and I dare say, and, and for folk, you know, don't, you know, some people might, may take it the wrong way, but this is also what happens when you stop chasing white validation. When you recognize that, if you're talking about, oh, you know, go to a place where you value, I'll be honest with you. I've always understood that I was valued in black media more than I was in white media. And so hopefully people will not, let me be real clear, hopefully people will not look at black institutions as my fallback. But as their first choice, not their last choice. Absolutely, Roland. I um I I love everything about this new season where we no longer care about white validation. Um, no, 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 no. Hold up. Some. Let's not get carried away. A whole bunch mm. of us still do. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's speak it into existence that all of us could be delivered from the need for white validation, um, because I experienced the same thing. And that's why I got so excited. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure I wasn't on camera, but when I heard that headline, Bethune-Cookman did so well by me, uh, as opposed to the- Yeah, no, no, you know, no, you, you, no, you were not on camera. Hearing was a little sw slow switching, but y'all, let me just give y'all a reenactment. This was Ben. Yeah, uh-huh. That, that was the reenactment of, of when Ben heard that news. So, Henry, next time, switch faster so we can show Ben acting a fool on camera.
Listen, listen, y'all should see me behind the screens, uh, especially with some of these stories Roland be covering. But listen, I'm a product of Mary McLeod Bethune's dollar and 50 cent. Um, I'm a product of her, her last will and testament. And so to see this trend happening across the country, uh, Howard University, they they won out big. I mean, can you imagine being able to learn underneath the tutelage of uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates and uh, Hannah Nicola, uh, 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 Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, Jackson State? Um, with prime time. I mean, it is going to be a, a wonderful renaissance in believing in only validation we need is from other black folks, and I love it. Look, again, I, and I, I'm, I'm going to say I'm going to say this again. Uh, th there is, look, I, I, I get, you know, I get folks who sit here and they, you know, that they they want to work various institutions and they want, and, and I get it. Um, and, and I know there's somebody who's probably saying, oh, Roland, that's easy to say you at CNN, but they got to remember, uh, I left, I left, um, I, I was with black media before I was with CNN, and I never left black media. And, and I really want people to understand that we also have to be thinking about, uh, uh, Teresa, how we actually build something, the opportunities that we actually get. And so I would hope more people would have an appreciation of black-owned, black-led, black-run institutions. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I remember uh, years ago, um, as I was making a decision, uh, going to an HBCU school uh, starting out or um, going to a, a traditional college. You know, I started out at a HBCU school um, and then, you know, I transferred to a traditional, but I, I, the important part was the decision was going to an HBCU school because I was looking for culture. I was looking for, you know, um, more background on black excellence. I wanted to know more. So I, I think there's a whole narrative that you can get at an HBCU school where you don't really have to have so many uh, racial uh, inequity conversations <laughs> that you would at a traditional school that's just trying to figure out our blackness. At an HBCU school, um, students say, you know, there's been studies that say they feel comfortable, they feel like they're at home, they, you know, they, they feel more in position to do greater things. And so I, I, I want people to know that HBCU schools um, have excellent leadership. Excellent leadership is always pulled into corporations. So different individuals that you may not hear on your alumni chapter is also working in high end positions. Uh, you know, in the corporate or political space or even entrepreneurial space. So I think, you know, supporting every HBCU school um, and making it your first choice is the right choice. Well, I, t I tell you this here, and so Mustafa, I, I make it clear, uh, go, where, go where you can go. People always ask me, man, you didn't go to HBCU. I'm always seeing you wear your Texas A&M gear. I'm like, you're damn right. My brother went there, I went there, my sister went there. Hell, my parents didn't have the money for all three of us to go to school, so we went where the money was. Uh, and so if HBCU had offered me a scholarship, TSU was right across the street, they didn't even recruit me, and I was the best student in my high school in terms of school communications. Uh, but, I, but, but what I tell people, it don't matter if you didn't go to HBCU, you can still support black institutions, which is one of the reasons why I'll be a scholar in residence at Fisk University this fall. Well, congratulations on that. I mean, you raise a, the most, one of the most important points is that for the first time in a very, very long time, we're actually seeing an influx in dollars 
uh, towards uh, some of our HBCUs. I can give a list of others who haven't yet benefited uh, from, from the sets of dollars that are out there, and to some of our black organizations. So we have to continue to push folks to make sure that the right investments are happening. And then we have to also make sure that we are supporting uh, the organizations that we see value in. So you actually are making a decision when you do not support black organizations. You are saying that you don't see that much value in them. So we have the opportunity to actually change that. And I'll say that's another reason to make sure that you are supporting the Bring the Funk fan club to make sure that this particular uh, show continues to have the dollars that it needs so that even when we're at home, we can have the nice backgrounds like you got in the studio right now, Roland. You got that right. And so that's what we're trying to do. Uh, and we, we stay on top of the news as best that we can. Folks, some breaking news uh, out of New York City. Uh, they have called, the Associated Press has called the race for Eric Adams. Eric Adams, the, the, uh, the uh, Brooklyn Bureau president, former police officer, uh, he is the winner of the Democratic mayoral primary in New York City. Remember, they had ranked, they had ranked uh, choice uh, balloting there for the first time. Uh, he actually tacked to the center. Uh, he, uh, and he beat out a number of folks uh, who uh, had the progressive label. Uh, that, of course, uh, not, uh, not, not great news for a lot of people, Ben, uh, who wanted to see uh, a strong, avowed progressive. There were people who were like Maya Wiley in the race. There were others. Uh, but the reality is uh, Eric Adams put together the kind of winning coalition needed becoming just the second African-American uh, mayor uh, in the history of New York City. The first, of course, was David Dinkins, uh, who passed away last year. Yeah, congratulations um, uh, on, that, on that victory. I, I do think regardless of the tack towards the center, which was a good move considering the, how crowded the field was. It was smart tactically. We saw something similar in the general election, um, or rather in the primaries with Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. That said, um, there will be um, constant voices of activists and pressure being put to make sure that the policies, if he's to become mayor, and it looks like that will be the case, um, the policies will help the people regardless of where he tacked towards the center. We know the progressive agenda is one that's going to help the people of the city of New York. So, But still, again, congratulations to uh, for the victory. Now, bottom line is you had a whole bunch of candidates who were running, uh, and so Eric Adams put the right coalition together. Uh, he was not shy about policing. Uh, he even talked about bringing back stop and frisk. That was not good news to a lot of progressives uh, in uh, the race, uh, Mustafa. But uh, clearly, he was a choice of New Yorkers. Brother Adams has never said that he was a progressive. Um, he's very strategic. Um, and as you said, he put the right coalition together. And, and he knew how to count the votes. So, you know, that's a winning formula. I think that, you know, he will, uh, in most instances, uh, be a, a strong advocate for our communities. But, you know, he does come from, you know, a longstanding uh, law enforcement background. So folks are going to have to continue to push him uh, to give him the space to make sure that he's doing the right thing and making sure there's some progressive values that are a part of his administration in that area. It was not a blowout. Um, uh, it was not a blowout at all, Teresa. Uh, this is what the New York Times is saying. Uh, Eric Adams won the nomination uh, by a uh, rail fan lead. Uh, AP called the race for Mr. Adams after results from the city's Board of Elections showed that he held a lead of one percentage point over his nearest rival, Catherine Garcia. With most absentee votes now counted, Mr. Adams led Ms. Garcia by 8,426 votes in the city's 
first mayoral contest to be determined by ranked choice voting. If people don't understand and every vote counts, they better understand it in this race. Absolutely. And it looks like, um, one, history was made. So congratulations to uh, Eric Adams, mayor-elect uh, Eric Adams, and the entire coalition, supporters, organizations. But as we look at, you know, I think some of this political opportunity where ranked choice voting has been a hot topic, because this is something that I believe progressive and some liberals are now trying to push city to city and state to state to uh, also understand um, um, or do better in elections. So I think this will be another hot topic. I think we need to, you know, again, watch the um, results fully come in. Um, he did win, but I also believe that there will be some conversation about this ranked choice voting, and thus we will be back on the dialogue for this. So uh, congratulations to him and the team. All right, folks, got to go to a quick break. We come back. Roland's Book Club will talk about how to be a Jedi leader and not a boss. My guest will explain on Roland Martin Unfiltered. When you study the music, yeah. you get black history by default. And so no, no other craft could carry as many words as rap music. I try to intertwine that and make that create the, whatever I'm supposed to send out to the universe. A rapper, it, you know, for the longest period of time had gone through phases. I love the word. I hate I hate what it's become, you know, in, in to this generation, the way they visualize it. It's narrative kind of like has gotten away and spun away from, I guess, the ascension of black people. be a true leader when it comes to your business. My next guest says you should be a Jedi leader, not a boss. Leadership in the era of corporate social justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Omar Harris joins us. So, Omar, what does it actually mean to be a Jedi leader, not a boss? What's the difference? It means basically leaning into uh, the practices of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion is how you achieve the outcomes of more value from more stakeholders. Bosses are far more ego-driven, and a lot of the toxicity and injustices and inequities we see in corporations today emanates from that boss archetype. Uh, everyone trying to climb the corporate ladder and knock everyone else off the corporate ladder, that leads to toxic behaviors and strategies that don't actually uh, add value to customers, employees, communities, the environment, or even shareholders. So, so, so again, uh, unpack that, because every, right now we're all in the whole deal, DEI, DEI. I'll be honest with you, I think most of it is BS, and it's window dressing. Um, it's not real, uh, because people they hire to be over DEI, frankly, don't have any P&L responsibility. They don't have any staff as well. Uh, and so, if we're now talking about being a leader in this, 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 this new world we're living in, uh, what do you have to know? You know, how must you be able uh, 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 to lead uh, your staff in a diverse world? Well, I think the first thing is you have to lean, lean, lean into difference, and you lean into difference by understanding everyone's unique talents and strengths in the organization. I'm a Gallup certified strengths coach 
which means that we focus on the power of positive psychology in business, which is basically finding what's right with people versus what's wrong with people. And that's the beginning of a new world of trust between yourself and the employee that allows you to build high-performance teams and achieve high-performance outcomes uh, in companies. I worked for global pharmaceutical companies around the world in the U.S., Turkey, Indonesia, and Brazil over 20 years, and I've seen that positive psychology, servant leadership, and leaning into justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion as how you serve and support your people is how you get get real work done in corporations and really begin to change the, the toxic status quo that's resulting in, we saw 4 million people opt out of the workforce in April, resigning from the workforce in April. So there's a big problem happening in corporations today. And as you mentioned, there Companies are making lip service about this issue, but they really need to lean into this space in order for them to even protect their their livelihood uh, as an organization. Um, look, you really don't have the only training that to be a boss really is you being in other sort of positions. There are a lot of people today who, oh, they want to be a boss, but a lot of people don't understand what that means to be a boss. Yeah, I mean, I think bossing, first of all, um, and I talk about this in the book, do you know the word boss comes from the Dutch word base, which is actually a, slave, a Dutch slave word for master? And so uh, boss fundamentally has a white supremacist root. Another reason why we should not pursue Boston in corporations. We should be pursuing leadership, which is really about positive influence, impact, and higher results. Uh, and basically, the fact that businesses can be more now, businesses have to do more than just provide profits for shareholders. Businesses have to add value to employees, customers, communities, and the environment, in addition to shareholders. And that's the statement of purpose that's been redefined by corporations as of 2019. All right, questions from my panel. I'll start with uh, you, Teresa Lundy. Yes, uh, one, thank you. Uh, I look forward to picking up the book. Um, so if there was uh, one key advice that you would like to uh, for us to really get out of this book that you mentioned, um, what would it be? Then the first one is that we have to take on this ownership for ourselves. Um, this is not something that hetero, cisgender, white men are going to help us with in corporations. And so this is an opportunity. It's a land grab. In corporations, there's not a lot of white space for us to actually operate and create opportunities for ourselves. So the DEI space, although, as Roland mentioned, service is a land grab for us. This is an opportunity for us to create space and kind of shape it as we see fit. And this is something that African-Americans and BPOC and Latinx in corporations should be leaning into this space and not shying away from it. Uh, uh, Mustafa. Um, first of all, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Uh, are there examples of the Jedi leadership paradigm uh, that folks can point to that are, that are showing how folks are utilizing that to move to the next level, their organizations? So I think that Adam Silver is a great example that I point to in the book around what it means to be a Jedi leader. So what he did last year with the uh, with the George Floyd situation and how the NBA created the bubble around the pandemic, uh, he had to lean into and listen to and really understand and validate the experiences of the players. And this was a situation where uh, he listened and leaned in and was able to create something, a space for the athletes to really uh, do something phenomenal, which was uh, really demonstrate the social justice protests and also uh, advocate for greater voting access and things of that nature and get owners, actually bend the owners to their will and get owners on board with the needs of the player. We've never seen anything like that before. That's truly the example of a Jedi leader 
actually leveraging, uh, listening and supporting his employees in order for him to, to drive better value and outcomes for everyone involved. Ben. I've had the uh, privilege of working in some environments that I think would match uh, what you're describing in terms of like the Jedi versus the boss concept. But I'm curious, what kind of pushback are you getting from corporate America? Because there's so much time that has been, been spent, uh, uh, entertainment, movies, books, about this aggressive nature of being a boss. Are you getting any pushback from people who cherish that paradigm? Um, I'm a, I, I certainly expect to get pushback from people who cherish that paradigm, which is why I'm going to people who are already embracing the new world. Basically, what I'm saying is that this is a business risk fundamentally. It's bigger than just, uh, you know, some corporate leaders see this as, you know, the next PR initiative or corporate social responsibility. It's none of that. This is actually fundamentally mm -hmm. business risk. Companies since 2012 that have not leaned into this space have lost over $64 billion a year in terms of lawsuits and things of that nature being taken out of their companies. Market capitalizations are being reduced from uh, CEOs being caught with bad behavior. So this is business risk. And when you when you when you tee it up as business risk for CEOs, they begin to lean into the space and say, okay, so we want to mitigate and anticipate and remove this out of our system so that we don't have to pay the price. Uh, in terms of shareholder value later on. So that's an argument that I've been making that's actually giving a lot of headway uh, in a lot of corporations. All right, y'all, the book is called Be a Jedi Leader, Not a Boss, Leadership in the Era of Corporate Social Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion by Omar L. Harris. Omar, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Appreciate you. All right, folks, if y'all want to support what we do here at Roller Martin Unfiltered, please do so. Uh, as Mustafa said, by joining our Bring the Funk fan club, every dollar you give goes to support this show and the work that we are doing here. We've got some great things for you. I can't wait to show you our new space. Uh, we have literally just moved in. Our first day was Thursday, and so we're still putting stuff up. And so uh, I, 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 I've teased. Okay, so I'm, I'm just going to give y'all this one tease. Okay, so Henry, take it wide. Uh, so this is just, this, but this is literally, I just want y'all to understand, this is just 10% what you're seeing. You're not even, it's not even close uh, uh, to what uh, we're actually going to show. And so I can't wait to show y'all uh, everything here. But we've got some man of amazing stuff lined up for you. So trust me, y'all want to support us. Uh, again, go to cash app, dollar sign, RM Unfiltered, uh, Venmo.com forward slash RM Unfiltered, PayPal.me forward slash R Martin Unfiltered. Zale is rolling at rollingsmartin.com, rolling at rollingmartinunfiltered.com. Um, and again, what we're asking for, 50 bucks from each one of our fans. That's $4.19 a month, 13 cents a day, 50 bucks for the year. If you want to give more, you can do so. If you want to give less, look, we understand. We, we accept every dollar. Uh, let me give a shout out. There were some people, of course, uh, who sent some checks in. Uh, and one of them sent a really big check in. Uh, so let me see if I can, uh, where did I, where did I, okay, I'm trying to find the name. I know I sent today. Oh, so shout out to uh, Yvonne Butts, Cheryl Taylor Earl, Randall Proctor, Shirley Majors, uh, Dwayne Baker Jr., Sybil Brown. Sybil, that was a big check you sent. I appreciate it, Sybil. Uh, John Shelton, Charles Chambers Jr., Cheryl Dugan, Lisa Jenkins, Kenneth Lee. Uh, and so we certainly appreciate y'all's support. Everybody who gives 50 bucks or more, y'all get a personal shout out for me on the show. Uh, and so that's how we do it. And of course, every Friday, we list all of our fan club members and we scroll all of their names uh, and we make them available on our website as well. All right, folks, that's it for me. I'll see you guys tomorrow right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered, where we'll be talking to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, Labor Secretary today, Transportation tomorrow, right here 
on Roland Martin Unfiltered, where we keep it real, keep it black, and we ain't got to ask anybody for, for permission to do what we do. Halt! From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.